Only 5% of patients nationally enroll in clinical trials. And in our hands, 66% of our glioblastoma patients are enrolled in clinical trials. And the rationale to do that is observe patients do better. They get more care, they get more oversight, complications are seen more quickly. So patients enrolled in clinical trials have better outcomes, even if they get a placebo. Welcome to 20 Minute Health Talk. I'm your host, Rob Hoyle. While we don't often think about clinical trials and their impact on our health, the COVID vaccines have put a spotlight on their importance. Our guest today is a major proponent of clinical trials and has been internationally recognized for his research in brain tumors and stem cell biology throughout his 20-year career. Dr. John Bookvar is the Vice Chair of Neurosurgery, Director of the Brain Tumor Center at Lenox Hill, and Director of the Laboratory for Brain Tumor Biology and Therapy at the Feinstein Institutes for Medical Research. Dr. John Bookvar, thank you so much for joining us here on 20 Minute Health Talk. Uh, why such an emphasis on research? Is research something that you've always been interested in? Well, first of all, thanks for having me on this great podcast. And um, I think it's a very important topic to talk about why clinical research is important. I think as all of us have endured this uh, pandemic over the last year and a half, we realize that research really has saved humanity. And if it was not for the courage of both the researchers like Kate Carrico, um, who developed the mRNA vaccine for BioNTech, who I know personally from my days at the University of Pennsylvania, for her perseverance in clinical research, and for the volunteers who participated in the clinical research trials, um, we would have had a very different uh, ending of this uh, pandemic. So we saw firsthand last year and this year now um, exactly what you suggest is the importance of clinical research, funding clinical research scientists, uh, efforts like we have at the Feinstein Institutes for Medical Research, uh, really will save humanity. That's fascinating. And you mentioned Dr. Carrico, the inventor of mRNA technology. You actually had her as a guest speaker for your department's summer internship, Brain Turns, last summer. So actually, it's quite a remarkable story. When I started my residency um, at the University of Pennsylvania in uh, 1997, Caitlin Carrico was working, uh, she's a Hungarian immigrant who was working at the University of Pennsylvania, I think at the level of maybe an assistant or an associate research professor. In fact, our chair at Lenox Hill Neurosurgery and my close friend and brother, as you know, is David Langer. And David Langer spent his research years in the Department of Neurosurgery at the University of Pennsylvania, working on mRNA with Caitlin Carrico. So it was our absolute pleasure um, to invite Kate to speak you know, during our Brain Turns uh, virtual lectureship, which you may not know had about 15,000 students enrolled virtually from, uh, I think it was 75 countries, 55 languages. And Kate was able to speak uh, about her experiences, both at Penn, uh, doing mRNA for stroke, and years later, uh, doing mRNA uh, for the spike protein for COVID vaccine. Yeah, I think what a lot of people don't realize is people talk about how fast the COVID vaccines came to market, but people don't realize the groundwork that was laid for it, all the research that went in for years was was working toward that point. Uh, that's exactly right, Rob. The research that, um, yes, there was research that had been done with SARS and MERS, um, other coronaviruses that um, 
were endemic uh, to parts of the world. So that groundwork we knew was important, uh, preparing us for the next coronavirus uh, pandemic, which happened to be COVID-19. So the work that Kate and others had done uh, for decades before really laid the groundwork for the rapidity that we saw uh, with the making of the uh, uh, mRNA to the spike protein for, for COVID-19. And I guess there's a lot of things that are learned during clinical trials and probably some things that weren't expected to be learned. You know, my father died of cancer 10 years ago, and he actually died during the last pandemic, um, which was uh, the H1N1 uh, swine flu um, pandemic. And he he was in the middle of chemotherapy. And, um, you know, I think as a, a care provider and as a patient, having even just a shoulder to cry on um, and the more people around you, um, the better it is. And you, you get that when you're involved in a clinical trial. I see so many patients from small uh, rural areas across the country who are dying from their glioblastomas and they're alone. They have no access uh, to a clinical trials office. My research coordinators, my data managers, my nurse practitioners, my RNs, my PAs, my residents, my fellows, there's always someone there for our patients. And I think that's an sort of an invaluable resource. Yeah. And I would assume that clinical trials, you know, they, they make great improvements to healthcare, right? I mean, it, so much good can come out of a clinical trial. Listen, we see it every day on Twitter and in the newspapers, um, whether it's Johnson & Johnson or BioNTech or Moderna. I mean, every day, AstraZeneca yesterday with its COVID antibodies, every day. It all comes from clinical trials. Yeah, I mean, it's a 180 character tweet today, mm -hmm. but it took about a decade's worth of research at least. So, Dr. Bookvar, tell us about some of your clinical trials and what you focused on over the years. Well, I started, I, I came out of the University of Pennsylvania uh, with an interest in uh, stem cell biology and brain tumors and some fine sort of uh, molecular biology of, of the cell signaling. And so I started early looking at uh, targets. And one of the targets was a protein called epidermal growth factor receptor. So I started early in my career when I started at Cornell looking at small molecules. But as we've talked about, those molecules really, 98% of small molecules, even though they're small, don't get through the blood-brain barrier. So I very quickly realized that that was not a great avenue. You know, it may, it may get you sort of a Nobel Prize in medicine when you're looking at the um, the the let's say crystallizing a, a protein, but it's not going to help my patient who has a blood brain barrier. So I quickly pivoted with the help of some colleagues in trying to understand the blood brain barrier. And that's where my focus has been at the Feinstein Institutes and at, at Lenox Hill Hospital, Northwell Health, we're world leaders in something called intra-arterial drug delivery for brain tumors. Uh, we just published our large phase two results in the journal of neurooncology uh, last week. Um, and we will be the lead site for a phase three randomized controlled trial, looking at selective intra-arterial drug delivery to bypass the blood-brain barrier for patients with glioblastoma. So that should open in 2022. And um, that's really where my focus has been. When we talk about the blood-brain barrier, what is the blood-brain barrier? And why, is it also, it, why does it, it create um, some obstacles? Well, the blood-brain barrier is essentially a, a gate. Um, that separates the blood from the brain tissue. 
And the reason, the rationale to do that is it's evolutionarily preserved in case you get bit, for example, from a venomous spider, perhaps that venom, when it gets into your bloodstream, won't get into your brain because it's blocked by the blood-brain barrier. And therefore, your brain is protected. We actually know, we learned about the blood-brain barrier at autopsy of jaundice patients. And they found that at autopsy, a person with jaundice from, let's say, liver failure, every organ was yellow except the brain. And the reason for that is uh, Billy Rubin was not able to you know, pass through the blood-brain barrier. So that's a little bit of the history of the blood-brain barrier. Well, it's good to have a blood-brain barrier if you get bit by a poisonous spider, uh, but it's bad if you want to get drugs into your brain. For example, if you have a brain cancer, a brain metastasis, Alzheimer's disease, or stroke. So we need to circumvent safely uh, the blood-brain barrier to deliver chemotherapeutics into the, the human brain. Glioblastomas are the most deadly form of brain cancer. Can you tell us about the other challenges around treating patients with these, this illness? Yeah, glioblastoma is a universally fatal disease. The median survival is about 12 to 15 months. That means 50% of patients live shorter than that and 50% of patients live longer than that. And not only do we not understand the basic biology uh, to a large extent about brain cancer, particularly glioblastoma. As we've talked about, the blood-brain barrier is an inherent uh, problem that we must circumnavigate to get drugs through the, into the brain. So it is a significant problem. And it, you know, it's also what we call an orphan disease. You know, October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month and everyone's wearing pink. There are hundreds of thousands of patients with breast cancer that are living with breast cancer. The number of glioblastoma patients is only 13,000 per year in the United States. And so when you have small numbers, it doesn't generate the interest or enthusiasm, not only from commercialization and a marketing perspective to generate awareness, but whether it's the NIH uh, giving research dollars or biotechnology investing, it's not a hot space in that it's a clinical unmet need that needs a lot more funding and a lot more awareness. So we're working hard to make May uh, uh, go gray in May is our uh, brain tumor awareness month. And uh, the NIH has helped to give a lot of our drugs and devices orphan drug status, meaning that they can expedite the treatment. And again, our patients, um, we, we just have, we're fortunate to have uh, an institutional review board that sits at the Feinstein Institutes that is safe and sound and allows, allows us to translate our um, novel research into novel clinical trials for our patients uh, with glioblastoma. Dr. Bookfark, you often talk about Strive for Five. Tell us exactly what that means. So... As mentioned, the, the average survival for patients with glioblastoma is approximately one year. Less than 5% of patients live five years. But we strive for five in all of our patients, meaning that our slogan, Strive for Five, is in every single patient, we want to get them to five years. We want them at the tail of that curve. And the rationale is if I can get them to five years, who knows what other advances we will have made Look at your iPhone. Your iPhone gets an improvement every six to 12 months. We hope that whether it's cervical navigation techniques, new understandings of the genetics of brain tumors or your immune system, we want to strive for five, get that patient to five years and give them the next best thing 
when it comes down the line. Yeah, Northwell offers 150 active trials for various types of cancer at a given time. Approximately 66% of GBM patients enroll in clinical trial as compared to national average of only about 5%. Why should someone participate in a clinical trial? Well, I just want to reiterate, only 5% of patients nationally enroll in clinical trials. And in our hands, 66% of our glioblastoma patients are enrolled in clinical trials. And the rationale to do that, and I will state explicitly, I have no financial incentive in any of my clinical trials. So I don't get paid a cent uh, for a patient. And I think as a patient, you want to make sure that your provider does not have financial incentive to participate in a clinical research trial. But the reason a patient should do it is we know if you took all human patients across all diseases and compared those outcomes in patients enrolled in a clinical trial versus those that are not enrolled in a clinical trial, patients enrolled in clinical trials have better outcomes, even if they get a placebo. Why patients are do better in clinical trials is the placebo effect is real in that. And patients also, there's something called the Hawthorne effect. And the Hawthorne effect is observed patients do better. They get more care, they get more oversight, complications are seen more quickly. So the takeaway message for any patient is patients in clinical trials have better outcomes than patients who do not participate in clinical trials. Yeah, it is amazing the the placebo effect that you talked about. I mean, I've talked to patients who were in trials that, you know, started feeling so much better and and almost, you know, convinced that they were getting the experimental treatment and then were were so surprised to find out that they weren't. They were getting a placebo. How great is that? I mean, that's the power of the endorphins and encephalins that are in your brain. So, you know, the it, placebo effect is real. Tell us a little bit about the uh, the Brain Tumor Biotech Center at, at the Feinstein Institute. So the Brain Tumor Biotech Center at the Feinstein Institute is actually the only brick and mortar uh, brain tumor dedicated biotech center in the world that I know of. Um, and essentially what its goal is, is to combine benchtop research uh, with biotechnology companies in an academic uh, translational setting where you're in the state's largest health system with access to a community that is diverse. And basically our goal is to shorten what we call the translational divide. The translational divide is how fast it takes a medicine or device to go from the bench to the bedside for the human patient. And our goal is to combine all of those resources in a setting where we can shorten that translational divide. And that's the goal of the Brain Tumor Biotech Center at the Feinstein Institute. And helping to bridge that divide are forums like the ones your department hosts at Lenox Hill Hospital. Tell us about those and the impact they can have. You know, one of the things I think Steve Jobs did when he built his headquarters in uh, Cupertino is he made people walk far distances from their desks to get to even the bathroom. And the rationale uh, was for people to collide. And the Brain Tumor Biotech uh, summits or, or events that we hold, and there are many events like this, um, Marsh Lecture being one of them um, at the Feinstein Institutes, it's to encourage collision. 
And of course, things like the pandemic kept us virtual, but there's actually a huge value uh, to the intellectual collisions that occur on days like the Brain Tumor Biotech Summit or the Marsh Lecture uh, given at the Feinstein Institutes for Medical Research. And those collisions lead to uh, random associations and collaborations that otherwise likely would not have occurred. You're working on a really interesting clinical trial right now, which attempts to address the problem that the blood-brain barrier presents when treating brain cancers like glioblastomas. It's a really interesting approach that actually uses belly fat. Tell us about that. Uh, We have something that covers our our abdominal organs. So your organs, your small intestine, your large intestine are are covered by essentially an immunological organ called the omentum. It's basically fat. But it's a it's a blanket of fat that basically covers our organs. And in that fat are lymphatic nodes or lymph nodes that harbor all of the immune cells, the T cells, the B cells, the dendritic cells um, in that. And also there's a large blood supply in that piece of fat called omentum. And we use this piece of omentum for other purposes in the head, mostly to improve wound repair in patients that have had radiation, for example, for head and neck cancers. So I hypothesized two years ago that perhaps we can use this same piece of tissue and harness the blood supply and the immune cells that are in it and actually improve our treatments for patients with brain tumors. And the rationale is when I take out a brain tumor, can I take some of this momentum plop it into the cavity where the brain tumor was. Now I have a new blood source and that blood source is what we call extracranial, meaning that it came from your abdomen. And so there is no blood brain barrier in those blood vessels. And also I'd be giving the patient local immune cells to improve the patient's immune system in its surveillance of that brain cancer. So the FDA has granted us, um, we're the only site in the world that are, is doing this. It's called a mental cranial transposition to bypass the blood-brain barrier. We always like to end on a positive note here on 20-Minute Health Talk. So just tell me what gives you hope? What gives you optimism going forward? So, you know, I think what gives you know me optimism going forward is, and people ask me this all the time, um, John, how do you, how are you in a field that has such a poor results? The median survival for patients with glioblastoma is sometimes really only 12 to 15 months. The thing that gives me hope in any field is how do I improve the quality of life and the quantity of life in patients with terminal diseases? And we see this every day. And I think giving people, you really impact uh, individuals' lives um, by giving people meaningful, good quality, and good quantity of life. And that's what drives me. That's awesome. And I would assume that in your mind, too, that these trials and all this research is going to make those outcomes even better and better down the road. We do. And we do. The number one goal is to make sure that we're providing safe and effective improvements in the treatments of our patients with cancer and with all human diseases. Awesome. Dr. John Bookfar, thank you so much for joining us on 20 Minute Health Talk. For you, the listener, thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Rob Hoyle. Have a great day and stay safe. Get more expert insight from some of the leading voices in healthcare today. 
Subscribe to 20 Minute Health Talk on Podbean, Pandora, Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts.